0: Good morning. Sorry for that delay. Um, yeah, that was great. Great. It's always good to be here with you um, and just hear Christ exalted through song. I mean, that is an exciting thing. You know, even on a new song that I believe Jenny wrote, um, I could still hear people singing, which, you know, usually with new songs, nobody sings, right? Because nobody knows, I mean, nobody knows how it goes. Um, but that was great. I mean, that was just really encouraging. Um, my name is Andrew Clausen. and I'm one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community. Um, I usually spend most of my time out at the Leawood campus, but I get to come and, and serve through preaching once in a while. I was here a couple weeks ago, so it's good to see some familiar faces. I think every time I'm here, though, there's a new face or two, at least for me, and that is really encouraging as well. So um, why don't I pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity we have to, um, to read your word and to know how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, we, we thank you for how clear you are in, in saying what needs to be said. Lord, we ask in this time that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth of your word uh, to our hearts that we might live in a way that brings you and Jesus glory and honor. And Lord, we we ask, especially in this time, that you would help us as a body um, to live for you in ways that are that that again just reflect your glory. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for His cross, and we thank you um, for salvation. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Well, um, yeah. Um, As we're stepping into this this passage in Hebrews, you know, Hebrews is a fun book, and it's worth always kind of taking a step back every once in a while and just looking at where we've been. Um, As I've looked at Hebrews, I hope this has been encouraging to you as we've now started to kind of dig into one book. I know last year we were kind of all over the place in the Bible walking through it at a relatively fast-paced, um, and yet now it's really exciting to be in Hebrews. And, and a bit of the background on Hebrews that will help set up our text a little bit is um, Hebrews is this this wonderful book that was written to a group of people that we don't even totally know by a person that we don't totally even know, probably before the fall of Jerusalem or the the raising, R-A-Z, I-N-G, of, of Jerusalem. Um, and and yet, yeah, it's this wonderful book that ties the Old Testament to the New Testament through the personal work of Jesus. I mean, it's this, this literary masterpiece, this hinge that brings the new and the old together in ways that are just beautiful. I mean, it's, it's striking when you read the book. And if you haven't done this yet, I would encourage you, sit down, maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, and read the whole book of Hebrews in one sitting. Because when you do that, you get this picture This this consistent picture of Jesus, and it's it's just this wonderful thing. And what we see is the way Hebrews so, the way Hebrews kind of makes its case, makes its argument is there's this drumbeat that it goes back to over and over again, saying Jesus is more, Jesus is better, Jesus is 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 the best essentially. So so the author of Hebrews will say something like, "Well, you think Moses is cool." Jesus is better. You think the tabernacle is important? You know, the the, the tent of meeting, the place where God's people come together with him and dwell? Um, Well, Jesus is is that plus some, essentially. Because he is the true and better of all those things. And what we'll see in our text this morning is that Jesus is the true and better Adam. As we just heard read, um, Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 18 gives us this picture of Jesus as the true and better Adam. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want to show three ways that I think our text, the, the text actually gives us multiple ways, many more than three, but I think I'm going to focus on three ways that Jesus is the true and better Adam. So we're going to start in from right there. Jesus is the true and better Adam first and foremost, because Jesus reigns over creation. In the garden, when you think back to the, to the garden of Eden, right, and, and, and do that with me for a second. You know, a little less than a year ago, or I should say a little over a year ago, we were, we were reading through open here and we heard a message on the Garden of Eden. When we think back there, in the Garden, right, God created everything, right? God created everything that is. And he created everything to reflect his glory. And because God created everything, God rules over everything. There's this picture kind of being painted in Genesis 1 and 2 of God as the king. Because when he speaks... What he says actually happens, right? That's what happened with a king and a monarchy and a rule, is when the king spoke, people did. Things happened. And so there's this picture of God who who rules over everything because he created everything. And then he creates his image bearers, right? He creates Adam and Eve to bear his image, and on top of that, to have rule over his creation. So God is the ultimate ruler, and yet he gives Adam and Eve... Um, kind of delegated rulership, if you will. He says they are to have dominion over all that is. He says, "Let us make man in our image." In Genesis one, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness." Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God gives gives Adam and Eve this 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 rule. And it's a good thing. You know, God says over and over and over again, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then as many of us know, if you're a Christian, we generally know that Adam and Eve fell, right? They were tempted. They took of the fruit. They sinned. Sin simply means they disobeyed God's word. And when they fell into sin, the created order that God had 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 created and, and the way that God had created things to be all fell into disarray, all fell into disorder. Chaos ensued, and, and that delegated rule was changed, right? Because sin has this way of changing things. Sin has this way of warping and destroying, bringing decay to things in the way that God created them to be. Because sin is not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes every once in a while you hear somebody say, oh, it was so great, he died of natural causes. And we understand what that means. But there is nothing more unbiblical than saying somebody died of natural causes because death is unnatural by design. We are supposed to live and live abundantly. And yet, sin brought death into this world. So, so this delegated rulership has broken down. But Jesus, we see here in our passage, Jesus rules over creation. Look with me at verses 5 through 9. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So, the author is making this shift from angels, which is what he had just been talking about, to mankind. And then he quotes Psalm 8. He says, it's been uh, testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author quotes from Psalm 8, quotes right out of the psalm, which is frequent in Hebrews. He will, he will go back to different passages in the Old Testament and quote them in full, in full or allude to them. And here he quotes from Psalm 8, which is this, this psalm we heard before the service, the psalm that kind of exalts God for his creation. But more specifically, a psalm that exalts God in his creating of mankind. To reflect his image, to reflect his glory, and to rule over all things. Every summer, for like 17 years, I did summer camp uh, at the same camp. Any of you guys summer campers? You know, people who did kind of your typical summer camp? Okay, awesome. And every once in a while, every once in a while, I'll like smell something that reminds me of a musty cabin. Right? Right? Or I'll hear kind of a creaky door that reminds me of the mess hall door. Or I'll, I'll, I'll hear a song or a tune that sounds like a song that reminds me of a campfire song that we sang at camp every year. And our author here, in a very similar way, is quoting from Psalm 8 in order to help us think about Genesis 1 and 2. Because the original readers of Hebrews, when they heard Psalm 8, they immediately would have been thinking about God in the garden with his people creating kind of this, this order of the way things are supposed to go, the way that human beings are supposed to rule over God's creation. And so he's using Psalm 8 to draw them back to Genesis 1 and 2. And then look back with me in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him... Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffer- because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might test taste death. Test death. <laughs> he could test it too. Taste death for everyone. This picture of 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 Jesus reigning and ruling is clear in the Bible, right? We get this picture of Jesus ruling, and yet even the text says, although it doesn't seem like we totally see it right now. And part of that is because um, Jesus is dead and now he's at the right hand of the Father, right? And we're kind of in this, this in-between time waiting for him. And yet, I think there's another reason that the text is trying to get us to see. That it's hard for us to understand Jesus' rulership. And it's because Jesus reigns, Jesus' rulership is inaugurated through his death on the cross, right? Right? We think of Jesus as king and and we think, oh, well, he must be ruling and it's this this very high and mighty thing. And though it is, it was done through his being made low. You think of the first chapter of Hebrews and there's this picture of Jesus as very high, right? Jesus' exact imprint of the glory of God, the radiance of his glory. But then we see kind of this this underlying where it's trying to show how Jesus became man. The author of, of Hebrews is trying to help us understand you know, there's, there's this hypothetical question almost being, being posed where um, the author of Hebrews is trying to answer the question of, well, if Jesus is so high and mighty, why did he become, why did he become human? I mean, if he's so good and so, so kingly, so stately, why would he become human? And here we see it's because over and over again we'll see that Jesus is the true and better Adam. And then the, painter will, the, the picture will be painted better soon. So that being said, Jesus is the true and better Adam because he reigns over creation. I got really lost on my note sheet there. That's okay, though. <laughs> Jesus says in the gospel that, that he's the king and we are his servants, right? And the reason we struggle to see his rulership is because we don't look at the cross. You know, you think of Jesus in the gospels, right? And, and how was he made king? Right? He was mocked and flogged. He was given a robe and a scepter and a crown of thorns. Over and over again on his his unjust trial, he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Over his cross as he's hung, you know, hanging there about to die, there's a sign that says king of the Jews. Because his reign, his rule, is through his death on the cross. Jesus is the true and better Adam because he reigns over creation. Second, Jesus is the true and better Adam because he brings sons into glory. In the garden, as I said, God created everything, right? And Jesus created, Jesus, God created everything to manifest his glory, to make his glory clear, right? Everything that was created from, from beautiful mountains. Oftentimes, if, you're, if you've ever been in the mountains, you look at the mountains and you go, wow, I can't believe God's glory in this beautiful thing, this beautiful place all the way down to, you know, a baby or something like that. I've got a young daughter, and every time I look at her, I just can't help but go, wow, God is so wonderful in how he creates things to make clear how wonderful he is, right? Everything created is created to make God's glory clear, and yet he says in Genesis 1 and 2 that Adam and Eve, that human beings are created to reflect his glory in a unique way. We're supposed to bear his image, right? We're supposed to reflect his glory in a unique way. And then on top of that, we're supposed to build a family. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Because God created the whole world, and then he wants his unique glory to be spread throughout the whole entire world through this building of of a family, through Adam and Eve, right? You know, sometimes every once in a while somebody will say to me, wow, your kids, they look just like you. And I'm like, oh, thanks for saying that. That's really nice. Until I know that they met my wife. Which then it seems like it's a back-ended way of saying they got the short end of the family stick, right? But in a similar way, we reflect God's glory. But sin, again, it changes everything. Sin has this way of of changing the way we reflect God's glory in that like a like a a dusty mirror or like a frosty glass. We don't reflect the the glory of God in the same way, nor can we because of sin. And yet, because of Jesus, we can reflect his glory once again. Hebrews 1 will say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, in effect, is, is the original. He's the raised seal original, and we are mere copies. And yet, through salvation, through Jesus, we can mirror God's glory in the way, at least partially, that we are created to. If you look with me, verses 10 and 11, I'll I'll pick up in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who were sanctified all have one source. Jesus images God's glory perfectly. And through salvation through the gospel, lets us reflect his glory again. Because in Christ, this sinless person, this true and better Adam, came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And died the death that we deserve so that we can reflect God's glory again. Second Corinthians 3 will say, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The gospel says that we are glory thieves. We seek to bring glory to ourselves. We seek to take God's glory in effect and try to manifest our own goodness, our own strength, our own power. And yet the gospel calls us, Jesus calls us in the gospel to deny ourselves, to give our glory back to God. Because it was his in the first place. We were created to image his glory. So two things. Jesus is the true and better Adam because he reigns over creation. And second, because he brings sons into glory. And third, Jesus sacrifices for his beloved. In the garden, Adam and Eve were were married and they were called to a, a life of, of service and sacrifice, right? They were called to to come together as one, to be one person, almost, is the way the language says it. And they're called to live in this, this perfect union and... Um and yet the fall happens. You know, there's there's this this kind of banter back and forth between the serpent and Eve. And eventually, um, Eve takes of the fruit. She sees that it's that it's good for knowing good and evil, and she takes of the fruit and she eats of it. And fools will often joke that um, well, the, the 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 point of the text is that Eve fell first, and that's a problem. But the point of the text is that. Adam and Eve were there together. If you read the text together, there's this point. The point is not that somebody fell first, but that sin entered the world. Instead of service, instead of sacrifice for one another, both sinned. And therefore, their union, their marriage was fractured. It was, it was torn apart. You know, it, it gets considerably worse. You think about uh, when God comes a calling, right? After they, they fall in the garden, God comes a calling and He says, You know, where are you guys? And and Adam's like, hey, we're over here. Hey, how do you know that you're naked? Well, which you never want to be asked by anybody, hey, why are you naked? Like if there's one thing you never want to be asked is, hey, how do you know that you're naked? Um, It's a weird question. I don't know why I brought that up. That being said, you know, God asks him, how do you know that you're naked? And they, you know, they go through the whole thing. And eventually Adam, it's wonderful. God asks Adam, you know, what was going on here? And Adam essentially says, well, let's be honest, God. It's at least Eve's fault. But you gave me Eve, and therefore it's kind of your fault. Right? That's what he says. Instead of actually <laughs> instead of actually reflecting God's glory, Adam plays the blame game. And yet Jesus the text will say sacrificed for his beloved perfectly. Look with me at verse 14. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus dies, and in his death, he he defeats the power of Satan, who holds kind of the keys to death as one Um, as one singer songwriter will say, you know, he beat death at death's own game. And through that, he delivered God's people from slavery to death. There's this beautiful picture of the gospel. And then it says, Jesus makes propitiation for sins, which just means that Jesus takes our sin and God's wrath upon himself. Jesus takes our sin to the cross. Jesus takes God's wrath upon the cross and Jesus eliminates both through the cross. And then it says that Jesus is, is the high priest, the, f- the merciful and faithful high priest, which Hebrews will eventually have a, a longer section about that, so I'm not going to go into that. But here he's trying to show that, that Jesus had to become human. He had to become man in order to save mankind. The high priest was this go-between between God and man. He would offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. He would take a spotless goat or a bull or different types of animals and offer it up to God. Instead of Jesus doing that, Jesus was sinless and offered himself. He sacrificed for his beloved. He gave of himself for his bride, the church, for you and for me. Jesus is the true and better Adam because he rules over God's creation. Because he brings sons to glory. And because here we see that he sacrifices for his beloved. Our text goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus' humanity was necessary in order for him to save us. The text goes over and over and over again saying Jesus is the true and better Adam. And really what it's saying to each and every single one of us is that Jesus is the true and better you. And Jesus is the true and better me. The picture of the gospel is one where we recognize that we cannot be the people God created us to be without Jesus because of sin. And the gospel says that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we should have died because of our sin, so that we can live in him now, so that we can reflect his glory, at least partially, until he comes again. Amen? And so here we see these three things, and they call all of us, sorry, it's always the left side, it calls all of us to believe in Jesus in a way that manifests itself in, in, in life, right? So there's three things I think our text gives us on how are we to actually apply these truths, how are we to live in light of these things, and three things that I think come straight from the text, and this will be relatively brief. First first thing, recognize that Jesus is reigning over all things, That seems relatively simple, right? And yet, if you're anything like me, I frequently fail to see Jesus' reign in all things. I frequently fail to see Jesus in control of all things because death happens, right? Because sin is prevalent in our world and more importantly, in my life. And so it's hard to understand Jesus' rule over all things when all that is still happening, And yet the Bible never flinches, never flinches when asked, is Jesus in control? And so maybe the question for us, and I don't mean to make light of very hard situations. In no way do I mean to do that. But maybe the question for us is less about whether or not Jesus is in control and more about how are we supposed to glorify him in these hard situations. If you'll remember, the text says it right there, that Jesus in his suffering was glorified. Jesus was made perfect through suffering, and it's a hard thing to, to think about. So we have to recognize first that Jesus is in control over all things. Second, we're to work to bring many sons to glory. Jesus' mission in the world, His purpose in the world, is to make a community of disciples, right? Therefore, our mission in the world, if our heartbeat is the same as Jesus's, is to make disciples of all nations, right? is to build a community of disciples, is to reflect God's glory and character through bringing sons and daughters into glory the same way that he did. So our life should be bound up with bringing sons and daughters to glory. And third, the last thing that we are to do with this truth is we are to sacrifice for the sake of Christ's beloved. If Jesus gave of himself, sacrificially, Are we not called to sacrifice our lives for the sake of his church, for the sake of our family? You know, Gabe did a great job earlier this morning just talking about how it's so good to be with the family of faith, not just our immediate family, though that's obviously important, but it's so good to be down here. It's one of my favorite things about the fellowship is getting to see these these reflections of the church around Kansas City as I float around and, and, and see what's going on in our different campuses. We're called to serve and to sacrifice for God's glory, in this world, through the local church, we're supposed to give of ourselves. And so, those are the three things we have. You know, communion is this wonderful thing where, where we, we tangibly express, where we tangibly remember the good news of the gospel. And when Jesus was, was um, you know, giving his, his great commission to his, his disciples, he said, Go, you know, make disciples of all nations, all authority. All power has been given to me. And then he says, go, right? And so there's this picture of, of Jesus and his rule and his reign and his control. And then giving them kind of this commission to go and make disciples. To turn glory thieves into glory multipliers throughout this world. So stained with sin. <laughs> and that's our call this morning. And, and communion is this expression where we say, we celebrate somebody who died for us. We celebrate somebody who lived the life we were called to live and died the death we deserve to die. And yet, he's changing us. He's changing us. When we do communion here at Christ Community, we, we do what's called open communion, which just means that um, you don't have to be a member here at Christ Community in order to take communion. Um, we just ask that you are a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we would encourage you to believe in Jesus. This room is full of sinners. All of us are sinful and need to repent of our sin and turn to Christ. If you choose to not believe in Jesus, we would ask that you would uh, refrain from taking of the table, for this table is reserved for those who believe. Now, if you are going to take communion, we usually ask, I believe, if we come down and out and around to take communion. Um, and we would, I think we have gluten-free elements, so if you're gluten-free, we have that for you as well. All, all the elements are gluten-free. This is one way we express One way we mirror and reflect the glory of God in the world is through communion. So let us come now and do that together.